morning again, church. Please turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 11. This is Palm Sunday, as Peter mentioned. Today we look at the triumphal entry, the Lord Jesus entering into Jerusalem. The scripture appears on the screens in front of you. This is God's word. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray. Lord God, we come into your presence, the King majestic, eternal, all glorious above. We gratefully sing your power and your love. You are eternal, you are righteous, you are holy. And Lord, living in a a time of history where we are connected to everything that's happening all around the world and we see leaders rise up and we see strife and we see conflict, Lord God, we need to remember who is the true king, who sits upon the throne, who guides the steps of every human being, who determines the number of our days, who knows if a hair falls from our head, and who is a good and gracious and exalted king of the universe. And so this morning we ask that you would be our teacher, that you would show us the beauty of your son and what he came to do and what it means for our lives. And we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Since 2009... Forbes has compiled an annual list of the world's most powerful people based on the amount of human and financial resources that they have sway over, as well as their influence on world events. So you can take a moment right now to guess who you think the most powerful person in 2016 was, according to Forbes. It seems like we have lists for everything these days, doesn't it? We have lists for the most beautiful people, um, the most wealthy people. There's probably a list of the top five youth pastors. I haven't seen it, and I don't want to see it. But uh, we have a list for everything, don't we? And um, that's just what we do. We, we rank things. And this is what Forbes said, 2016, the most powerful person, according to them, was Vladimir Putin. They put number two, Donald Trump, number three, Angela Merkel, Uh, number four, President Xi, China, and number five, Pope Francis. And we do have a fascination with those who are powerful, those who are beautiful, those who are wealthy, those who are influential. 
we're interested in those folks. And of course, we understand that with power comes influence, the ability to do what you want, how you want. And this morning, we're going to look at a different kind of superpower. When we think of the word superpower, we typically think of the nations that those leaders that I just named lead. We call those nations the superpowers of the world. But today we're going to look at a different kind of superpower and dare I say the only true superpower in all of the universe, though he is not acknowledged as such so oftentimes. That's God specifically looking at the Lord Jesus Christ as our king. And we're going to see three things in our passage today. First of all, this is an understated entry. An understated entry, we see this from Jesus as he goes into Jerusalem. Secondly, we also see it's, it's a glimpse of glory. It's a, it's a glimpse of the glory that Jesus possesses, but that he, he gives up to come to earth, and yet you can't contain it. His glory comes through even in this passage. There's hints. And finally, what we're going to focus on, the calm before the storm. What is Palm Sunday really pointing to, and how does that uh, change our lives? What's the message for us? First of all, a map, just to orient you. Um, Jesus, um, if, he would have been coming from the upper right quadrant um, above where you can see on that map. The scriptures say he wanted to go down through Samaria, but he wasn't able to go that way. He was hindered. So he went around. He went down from Jericho to Bethany. Then he went to Beth, uh, Bethphage, and then he would have entered in Jerusalem. There you see the temple. And you can see around those cities is the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives was 2,600 feet above sea level. And so you can imagine Jesus, as he's coming to make this journey with his disciples, he alone knows why he's going, and from the Mount of Olives, he would have been able to look down and uh, see the city of Jerusalem, see where he was going to fulfill his mission. And uh, first of all, we see in our text, this is very much an understated entry, um, especially for for the Messiah, for the Savior. It was common for Jews to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, particularly for the Passover. That was common, but would, would we really call this a triumphal entry? Well, with gospel eyes, yes. Certainly as those who now live 2,000 years later, we know who Jesus was, what he came to accomplish, and what he did accomplish. But with first century eyes, we would say emphatically no. This was an understated entry. Though crowds line the street, there is no reason in our text or other sources to suppose that the Roman authorities took any notice. Here's the eternal Son of God. He's entering into Jerusalem. Yes, there is a crowd that is gathered there. Yes, they are shouting Hosanna, waving palm branches. But the power at the time, the Roman authorities probably didn't even take any notice. Pilgrims came to Jerusalem all the time. And uh, Bill Hybels makes this point about those who were present. He says, and he's talking about the crowd now, Jesus was the only one in the parade who knew why he was going to Jerusalem to die. He had a mission while everyone else had an agenda. The Romans, their agenda, keep the peace. Oh, another pilgrim coming through? No big deal not even a blip on the radar. Those present in the crowd, some of them shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In in a way they understood what it was about, but in another way they didn't because many of them 
perhaps we're thinking, well, maybe this will be the guy that leads the revolt so that we can overthrow the Romans, be an independent nation again. They didn't really understand what Jesus had come to do. His disciples didn't even really understand it. Jesus alone knew the messianic significance of his entry into Jerusalem. He alone understood. He alone, as he looked out from the Mount of Olives and saw that city, knew truly what God had called him to do, what his mission was for you and for me. Yet there are hints. It's amazing. If you look at the Bible, um, and I know there's different ways that people explain these things away, um, but there, there really are prophecies that Jesus fulfilled all throughout the Old Testament. And I'll point out just two prophecies. The, the prophet Zechariah was writing about somewhere about 520 B.C. So over 500 years before Jesus appeared on the scene, Zechariah wrote this, Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, da- daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. It's 500 years before Jesus came. And we might wonder, well, what's the significance? What's the point of Jesus riding a donkey? And William Lane, a scholar, tells us the significance. The description of a cult as one in which had never been ridden is significant in light of the ancient provision that an animal devoted to sacred purpose must be one that had not been put to ordinary use, okay? In other words, we understand this. We understand that it's, it's significant when the first lady um, wears the clothes of a certain designer or something like that. That's an honor for that designer um, in a much far greater way for Jesus to ride upon this animal, for this to be an animal that had never been ridden before points to the fact that this is for a sacred purpose, This lowly animal, this beast of burden, not a great um, steed, a great horse. You know, when kings would ride in the ancient days, they would ride into town with their armies behind them, all of their soldiers, all their weapons, everything they had in order to send a message. We're in charge now. But here's Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, on a donkey, but yet one that had never been ridden because it was devoted to a sacred purpose. What was the sacred purpose that this donkey would carry God Almighty into the city where he knew he would die for you and for me. 500 years before Jesus came on the scene, that was prophesied. We also see this in the book of Genesis. Now, this is Genesis is over 2,000 years before Jesus appeared on the scene. Joseph, the patriarch, is dying, and he's blessing his sons, And we come to Judah, and if you read the book of Genesis, Judah's not a great guy, um, but that's consistent with the genealogies that God works through sinners. This is what the prophecy Joseph said. He said, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nation shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch, He will wash his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. We won't go into everything that this passage is about. There's a lot of significance of this passage. But I will just say this. Scholars do make the connection between the reference to his donkey, the donkey there, and Jesus fulfilling this passage. And we know that Jesus comes from the line of Judah. He fulfills this passage all the way 2,000 years before. It's an understated entry. But it points 
to the scriptures that had prophesied that Jesus would come to save us from our sin. He would fulfill these scriptures. And yet, even then, we still, even in the passage, we do see a glimpse of glory. The crowds were shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The phrase Hosanna was originally a prayer from Psalm 117. It meant, Lord, um, praise the Lord. God saves us. Salvation is from the Lord. That's what the expression meant. But through time, it had also um, been accommodated, been changed a little to also be used as an expression of acclamation, like saying, hallelujah, or God save the queen, or, or some kind of expression, or God bless America. And so the crowd shouting this acclamation of praise is pointing to the true significance of who Jesus really is. If you want to get a sense of the praise that God deserves, go home today, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. It's an an amazing passage. Read chapter 5 too if you can. Read Revelation 4 and 5. And in that passage we see this picture of God in heaven and he's surrounded by his angels and he's surrounded by thousands and thousands and thousands beyond number giving him glory and honor and praise and the lamb is at his right hand that's Jesus that's the glory that he deserves and that's the glory that he set aside to come for you and for me and in this passage this crowd even though many of them probably did not even grasp the full significance of what they were saying, still give glory to the true king by saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He is the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. He is the great king. He is great David's greater son. He had come. It was a glimpse of glory. But it was also, and we're going to sit here for a little bit, the calm before the storm. There's a certain tension, there's a certain um, paradox present in this passage because Jesus really is the king. He's the king of the universe and yet he's going to his death. As As Jesus entered Jerusalem, the cross loomed before him the darkest day in human history was approaching. As I was thinking about Something about what Jesus must have felt. Imagine what he felt. Again, he's the only one that really knows. He knows he's coming to die. Nobody else really gets it. His disciples don't even get it at this point. Um, one, of, one of the images I thought of was if you've read the Lord of the Rings stories. And in the Lord of the Rings, of course, you have Frodo, the main character, the hobbit. He's carrying this ring. And Frodo's mission, if you remember those stories, if you've read them, was to bring this ring to Mount Doom to destroy it. But the way the author Tolkien, in in his brilliant English way, the way he does is he describes the ring as being a burden upon Frodo. It's just this little ring that he wears around his neck, but yet it, it feels heavy. It's wasting away at who he was, and it shows his, really his deterioration to get to Mount Doom to complete his quest, to complete his mission. That's just a story. Imagine what Jesus himself really felt as he looked, as he entered in on the great city of Jerusalem, knowing that he was carrying a burden that no one else could care, could carry. You and I couldn't carry the burden if we wanted to. No one else could bear it. Only he could as the Son of God, sinless, 
the burden that we ourselves cannot carry and yet the debt that we owe. Only Jesus could carry that burden. And sometimes I'll hear folks say, um, and as we, as we see him entering into Jerusalem, we not only see him carrying this burden that he alone can bear, but we also see a picture of the Christian life that we're all call, called to experience. You know, oftentimes I'll have uh, people say to me, this is a normal thing, I think this myself as well, God, why is there suffering in the world? Why, why am I experiencing suffering? Lord, why did you allow these events to happen in my life? Because I'm bearing this burden and it seems like no one else I know is. Why have you allowed this to happen? Why is there evil? Why is there suffering? And of course, we won't have all of the answers this side of glory. But we can say this for sure. The triumphal entry explains the Christian life. And let me tell you what I mean by that. The the triumphal entry explains the Christian life. And it does, it does so in this manner. We know that the path that Jesus followed is the path that we ourselves are called to follow. We are called to follow in his steps. This is the path and the paradox of the Christian life. Um, on your screens, you'll see some verses highlighting this. First, the cross, then the resurrection. Jesus said in, in Mark 10.45, just a few verses before our passage when he enters into Jerusalem. Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, you and I are not called to give our lives as a ransom for many. Praise God. We can't do that, and Jesus has done that for us. But you and I are called, Jesus said to us, take up your cross. Take up your cross and follow me. His path will be our path. His journey will be our journey, not in an identical way, but in the sense that we will experience suffering, we will experience hardship, some of it self-inflicted, much of it the result of living in a broken world. His path is our path too. It's the cross, then the resurrection. It's suffering and pain now, but it's glory to come. 1 Peter 4.13, rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Church, I can't tell you all the reasons that something's happening in your life or that something's happening in my own life. God doesn't always tell us. Sometimes he tells us later and we can put the pieces together and we say, wow, Lord, all this makes sense. Sometimes he, we don't know. But God does tell us that the path of the Christian life is suffering now and glory to come. And we know that because Jesus accomplished it and he's the first fruits of the resurrection, that that will be our path too for all those who put their trust in him. Let me um, end with some points of application for us as we think about Holy Week, Passion Week ahead of us. First of all this, I can't think of a time, at least in my life, when there has been more tension, more concern about the political environment in which we're living. And wherever we stand on on national politics or international events, wherever we stand on those things, we know this. We don't put our hope in politics or earthly power. That's not where our hope is. We don't look to um, 
to earthly power and to say, if only earthly power uh, would, would do, accomplish this or that, then everything in life will be fine. Rather, we look to the one true king. We look to a king who rode on a donkey and we say, that is the God whom I serve. That is the one true superpower in the universe. And whatever else may be happening in a chaotic and broken world, he's on his throne. And that's where we look to for our hope. Easter is also, it's a yearly opportunity to reset our thinking and our living and to remember that we operate according to a different value system. Let me illustrate this. I'm an NFL fan. Some of you here are football fans. Some of you are not. But I'm an NFL fan. I've always been an NFL fan. And in 1998, in my humble opinion, the best player in the NFL retired. Not everybody would agree that he's the best, but I think he was at the time. His name was Barry Sanders. Barry Sanders was a running back who played for the Detroit Lions. Now, we all know what happens if you're a running back, right? If you're a running back, you're the guy who's been given the ball, and then everybody wants to crush you. And um, if you give me a football and tell people to tackle me, I will run really fast too, but I don't look anything like Barry Sanders. I'll tell you that. Barry Sanders was worth the price of admission. He, he would like dance with the ball. I mean, he had, he had linemen doing circles around themselves because he was such a good running back. He was incredible. And in 1998, Barry Sanders shocked the world by announcing that he was retiring from football. Now, this was shocking for a bunch of reasons. Here's, here, let me just name them. One, he was walking away from millions of dollars, millions and millions of uh, more dollars he would have earned if he had continued to play football. He was also walking away from, from glory, um, you know, just the fame of being an NFL player in the spotlight. But perhaps the most interesting thing of all was uh, Barry Sanders was literally just a few hundred yards away from breaking the all-time NFL rushing record held by Chicago Bears great Walter Payton. And he just literally needed to play a few more games, and he most likely would have broken that record and um, had one of the most historic records in NFL history. Barry Sanders simply walked away. He was 30 years old after 10 years. Well, this is what we know. We know that in 1998, um, nobody was talking about something we now know as CTE, okay? CTE, cognitive traumatic, I'm going to give it a go, encephalopathy, okay? I just, just call it CTE. It's easier. Um, is a degenerative brain disease that um, autopsies are increasingly revealing in the brains of former professional athletes. Nobody was talking about that in 1998. It wasn't even on the radar screen. Um, These days, parents, I know this is a bit of a tricky issue. When my older son says to me, Dad, what do you think about me playing football? My best response is, well, the kickers make a lot of money too. Uh, and, And parents, that's the best advice I have on that, okay? You can navigate that one on your own. But I will tell you that in 1998, nobody was talking about CTE. And now in hindsight, we would say this. The decision to walk away from millions of dollars, from a historic NFL record, from more glory, from more fame, does not look crazy in light of a possible future of degenerative decline of the brain, of cognitive functions, of perhaps even an early death 
In fact, now it looks like a decision that could make a lot of sense, especially for someone who has been tackled a lot, has been hit in the head a lot. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to remember this. The, decisions to, the decision to follow Jesus, the decision to put our hope in this king and not in earthly treasures and not in our career and not in our riches and not in the success of our children and not in all these other things that the world is running after, it doesn't make sense to this world. It's a logic this world doesn't understand. Why would you not step on somebody else to get ahead? Why would you not just simply make your life about money? Why would you not worship your body or your fame or your success or those things? The world looks at us and says, you guys are kind of crazy. But when Jesus comes back again and the truth is revealed and every knee will bow, either by choice, by the way that passage means, some will bow the knee willingly and some will be forced to their knees. That's what that passage means when it says every knee will bow. And when every knee is bowed in front of Jesus, we will know the truth that life really is about knowing him and walking with him and serving him. And the values that can look crazy to the world no longer seem crazy because the truth is revealed. Church, we need to remember we operate according to a different value system. Easter reminds us of that. Easter reminds us that though the decisions that we make now in this life um, to follow Jesus by faith, to give our lives for him, may not seem to make a lot of sense to those around us, but it is the only true path to eternal and lasting life and glory to come. Jim Elliott put it in one sentence, everything I've just said in one sentence. He said this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's the purpose of of life. That's the point of life. Jesus pointed us to that. As we embark on Passion Week, church, let me ask us all this question. Are you open to whatever your king would call you to do? What's God calling you to do? To give. What's God calling you to give? To sacrifice. What's God calling you to let go of? To serve. Where and to whom is God calling you to serve? And finally, to share. To whom? And where is God calling you to share? Here's an Easter prayer to close us out. Lord, help me to take up my cross and follow you each day, knowing that I have an inheritance in heaven that can never spoil, perish, or fade. That's what life is about. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are the true king exalted on your throne even now. And we declare that we are your followers and we declare that our lives are yours. And we pray it in Christ's name, amen.